As he said, I'm Pastor Jeff. I uh, serve on Sunday mornings. You don't see me too much here in the services. I'm next door with your kids doing Father Abraham, had many sons, and we're doing all of that. And your kids are very well cared for this morning by a wonderful staff of people uh, that are there uh, taking care of them this morning. Pastor Dan and Kim, they're uh, out of town this uh, weekend. They're at a pastor's conference and I just would encourage you to be in prayer for them as they're seeking the Lord, refreshing their, their hearts, their spirits. I don't know a harder working couple, to be honest with you. I've been in probably full-time ministry for thirty, little over 30 years now, and I'm just amazed at their energy. I'm amazed at their dedication. And uh, they deserve this time to just be with other like-minded pastors and to get that encouragement they need and teaching and hopefully make some new connections with uh, other pastors in the country. So keep them in prayer and uh, they'll be back soon. This morning we would like to draw your attention uh, to Isaiah chapter 53. If you would turn there in your Bible this morning, Isaiah chapter 53. I was listening this morning, believe it or not, you know, it popped up on my Facebook feed, and it was Billy Graham in 1968. Now, the Billy Graham of 1968 and 2008 were different. (laughs) And um, he made a comment, and I really loved what he said. He goes, well, I hope that you'll hear with both sets of your ears. Both sets of your ears? I said, I only have one set of ears. What are you talking about? Your physical ears and your spiritual ears. And I went, oh, got that. And I thought, that's a great thing to share with the congregation this morning. So I hope that you'll... No, I won't do that to you this morning. But that will hear the Spirit of the Lord speaking to us this morning. Amen? Amen? You don't need a human voice in your life. You need the Holy Spirit in your life teaching you and drawing you by his love. Isaiah 53. Would you stand? We're going to read this together. This scripture written approximately 700 years before the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophetic, prophetic in every way, shape, and form. And as we're gathered together to observe the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to discern this morning what it means. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus all of our attention upon our Lord this morning and what he went through for us. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, help us to go to Calvary today. Help us to visit the place where you Gave your life for us. Help us to think deeply this morning, this very hour, Lord, that you would drive away any distractions, any cares of this world. Lord, that you would just clear our minds of any competing thought. And that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would speak into our lives. Individually, Lord, there are many needs represented in this room. I pray that you'd meet every need. I pray that your Spirit would just touch and heal and encourage and strengthen and build up those who are struggling this morning, those who might be discouraged in their faith, their marriage, their job. Lord, that we would take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So, Father, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So that you this morning and I would just hear with our spiritual ears. I'm going to read scripture to you this morning. You can even close your Bible at this time. If you want, you can leave it open. I encourage you not to take notes. I encourage you maybe just to close your eyes. Maybe just to listen and soak in what the Lord wants to say to you concerning his death for you and for me. The Apostle Paul, in the early church after the resurrection of the Lord, he wrote a defining verse when it came to communion for the church. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. he said, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he be- was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks 
judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. But if we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But when we're judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. The church, then, <laughs> should have been called First and Second Californians instead of Corinthians. They were just a really kind of an interesting group. And it was a, it was a group of people who were eating uh, in a non-discerning way the bread and the cup. Communion is one of the chief sacraments of the church. So is baptism. It's seen and practiced in the Gospels. Communion was, uh, in the early church, was something that was observed every day. Uh, The church broke bread daily. And all of us should participate in communion. In fact, you fathers and husbands, you know, I encourage you to serve communion to your family at home. Take some time and just remember the Lord. As often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death. How we need to stop and think about what Jesus went through. You know, when I'm reading the scripture in Isaiah, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, what does that look like? What does that mean? How do I apply that? What did it mean to Jesus when it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him? What? I mean, when you read some of the details, which we're going to read here in just a minute regarding communion, it's quite jarring, some of the things that our Lord went through on our behalf. The important thing is is that you and I are able to discern, and that's what I would like to do this morning, which means to have a right understanding of what his death for each of us means. Here, Paul, you didn't realize it when you heard it or read it in 1 Corinthians 11, but there's a really a three-point outline. The first thing is to remember back. Do this in remembrance of me. And then there's the look ahead in verse 26. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you and I are to proclaim his death. We're to proclaim his crucifixion, proclaim his suffering. And then in verse 28, it says, but let a man examine himself. So We're to look back, look ahead, and look within. Each of us needs to look within. So we're going to look back this morning. Do this in remembrance of me. Always remember my sacrifice. It's like the Lord is saying, never forget what I went through for you. Why? Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so I think we should remember the price that our Lord paid and even some of the details of his crucifixion. And I would like to share that with you this morning in a chronological way, using the four Gospels, using the events that happened in his life. And so I encourage you just to listen and soak it in as we go through this this morning. You're going to be blessed. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to each of us this morning. After the Last Supper in the upper room, which included a Passover communion meal with his disciples, in fact, it was the very first communion that the Lord served when he took the simple cup and the bread, 
we find Jesus and his disciples singing a hymn, and after that hymn, they made their way at night. This is after Judas had left the room. Jesus had identified him as the betrayer. Now you have the 11 remaining disciples. They make their way out the door of the upper room through the um, old city of Jerusalem, out the outer gate to the east, and then down a little slope through the Kidron Valley to the east and up the other slope. At the beginning of the slope is a garden that's still there today, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, a public garden. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. And here in this public garden, an olive tree grove, Jesus is being pressed like the olives. His emotions are now beginning to build up within him. He understands this scripture that he shared his disciples in the upper room when he said that these things concerning me have an end. The moment is now upon him. The moment that he was born for, the very reason why God became a man and took on human flesh was to use that flesh to purchase and redeem and to, to finally pay for with his own blood and his own body the sins of the entire world, the iniquity of us all. And so now he's looking at the events that are going to take place beginning in the next few hours they're going to build and build and build and build all the way until the noon hour. And so now he is under great stress. And it's here where he's beginning to sweat great drops of blood as he's praying. It's a condition called hemodrosis where the, the capillaries in your flesh are sweating blood. He's under that much stress because he, he sees and here's the taunts that are about to be thrown his way. And he knows that his beard is going to be plucked out. A crown of thorns will be placed upon him. He, he's going to be beaten. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be reviled. It's going to be the worst night of his life. So he's praying to the Father. And while he's praying, the other disciples can't keep up with him. And they end up falling asleep. And so the Lord is there in the garden alone. And he prays three times for this cup of suffering to pass over him. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass over me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it's there in that garden where the Lord commits himself to partake of that cup of suffering, his death. And so, after a while, there's a garrison of soldiers coming with their torches, led by the, the disciple who betrayed him, Judas, and he brings a garrison or detachment of troops. Maybe upwards of 600 soldiers come to arrest Jesus. They're there with the chief priests and the Pharisees, and being around the midnight hour and very dark, Jesus says, are you, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he. And at the sound of his proclamation, everyone falls backward down onto the ground and it's at this time that Jesus states that the scriptures might be fulfilled and he leaves the garden willingly with the soldiers. The first stop is at the former high priest Ananias, who's the father-in-law of the acting high priest Caiaphas. And he's there and they begin to mock and revile him and accuse him of blasphemy. 
He's then turned over to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, where all of the elders and scribes are gathered together as well, and they too begin to mock and to revile him. He's brutally interrogated, and the one thing on their mind this night is to kill this man who is threatening their ability to control the people and to make money off their temple sacrifices. It was quite an endeavor, and it's their wealth And it's their fear of this miracle man from Nazareth who was bucking the trend. They just have one thing in mind, and that is to put him to death. And that's the one thing that brings them all together. Even though they had their doctrinal differences, they all come together to eliminate Jesus. In that upper room beforehand, Peter was warned by the Lord that you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Three times you're going to deny me. Lord, I will never deny you. No way. I will go to the death for you. No, Peter. And so here's Peter now, following the events from behind, the great Peter, the loud mouth of the bunch. He finds himself languishing And sure enough, he denies the Lord three times in front of those outside the courtyard of the high priest where he was warming himself in the fire with the people. And so while denying his association with the Lord, he hears that rooster crow. And now these words ring in his ear and just bring him low. And now he begins to cry bitterly because he knows now that he has let down the Lord. He has betrayed the Lord. Meanwhile, inside, after a long night of interrogation and being charged with blasphemy, Jesus is now further mocked. And those presiding over him are this kangaroo court. They've They've already decided that the verdict is death. You're going to die at our hands. We want you dead. It now becomes dawn. And Jesus is led to a place called the Praetorium, which is the Roman... Um, judgment area there at the corner of the uh, in the gates in the old city of Jerusalem there and there is Pontius Pilate who is the acting Gentile Roman governor and Pilate interviews him and sees no fault in him and he's trying to sidestep this issue between the Jews and he decides to offer the release of Jesus as was the Passover custom at that time. I, I want to pause there and just remind you that it is Passover. Jerusalem is overrun with probably anywhere from one to three million pilgrims for Passover. Imagine Mountain Home having a million people inside of it. Could you imagine that? If you own a local business, that's a heyday for you, man, you know, but imagine what that would be like. So, you know, there's a tension there in the city because of this. And so Pilate tries to sidestep it, and and the Passover custom is to release a prisoner. And so he offers up this violent criminal named Barabbas. But instead, the people want Jesus. And so Pilate, now knowing that King Herod was in Jerusalem at this time, he sends Jesus to be interrogated by King Herod and his officers. And after being further mocked and reviled by Herod, He is clothed in a gorgeous robe by Herod that is purple, and Pilate declares that he and Herod both do not see the need for Jesus to die. Again, trying to appease the people, Pilate has Jesus scourged with a 
Cat of Nine Tails, a much feared torture device with a wooden handle with these long strands. And at the end of these strands is glass and bone and, and metal. And, and just like tearing, like fishing hooks, it was, it was designed to grab and to pull and to just tear uh, pieces of skin. And here the Lord is going to endure he was, he was judged to have 40, but they gave him 39, saving the last for mercy. Go figure that. But imagine the torment. Imagine the pain of having to endure 39 times all over your, your body. And so the Lord is now bleeding profusely uh, in the courtyard of the praetorium. His body is now beginning to go into a state of shock. He's been up all night. His worsened mental condition is, is getting worse, and now the Lord is just experiencing a symphony of pain throughout his body. And with that comes his, his heart that is beating like crazy, and he's under great stress. In fact, many people don't even survive that type of flogging. It's interesting to me that 750 years before that, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words about this very moment. He wrote, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. From the scriptures, this is what the Lord endured. He was fulfilling scripture in the midst of his own death. So they fashioned a crown of thorns and thrust it into his skull, thus igniting a whole new set of nerves that explode like lightning bolts down his neck and into his shoulders. And now, bleeding all the more, he's unrecognizable. And now Pilate takes him and he brings him out and parades him in front of everybody. And he says, behold the man. Look what I've done for you. I brought him to death's door for you. I've punished him just like you wanted me to trying to take him to that place where he didn't have to kill him, but yet it just enraged everybody more and more. And now <laughs> this group is, 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 is a demonic, oppressive atmosphere as they're just now calling for the name of Barabbas to be released and crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate relents and orders the Lord to be crucified. He's now given over to the Roman soldiers who are already put out by this. They're, they're on added patrol because of all the Passover celebration. And, you know, they're just, they're not happy. And so they take the time now to amuse themselves with this prisoner. And they begin to perform their own acts of cruelty upon the Lord. And so the Lord is led with the crack of whips through the streets of Jerusalem, and he's forced to carry the very instrument of his death upon his shoulders, a rough, heavy timber that grates on his exposed back. Most people couldn't even walk a few steps. You know something? When I think of a real man, I think of Jesus Christ. I think of what he went through for us. I think of him carrying that timber through the streets of Jerusalem after enduring that flogging and how he had the, the will uh, to carry that on his back for, for you and for me. 
And so if you were in Jerusalem, you're one of those people on the side of the streets. There's kind of this morbid curiosity as three prisoners are going to die publicly on crosses. And there's kind of a, you know, like coyotes. They start yipping. They just start getting excited. And there's this morbid thing going on. And there's this man that is there. His name is Simon the Cyrene. And, you know, he's there for the Passover. He's there to watch a little lamb be be you know, um, sacrifice to the Lord on the Temple Mount at 3 p.m. But little did he know that he would be the man who would be called upon by the Roman garrison to come alongside Jesus who has now collapsed in the road and can no longer go forward with the cross. And so now Simon the Cyrene is tasked with one of the most glorious privileges, if you think about it, to carry the cross of the Lord all the way to Calvary. I mean, he's going to watch and witness the most historic offering ever made in the history of mankind. A great multitude follows this doomed procession to a place called Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull, which is also called Calvary. A place that is outside the city walls that's located outside the old city of Jerusalem where Bodies that were unclaimed were dumped like trash. It was, a, it was a landfill. And Jesus is now taken to the top of this little hill. And there he is stripped of his clothing. And like tearing the gauze off an oozing wound, Jesus is now in utter torment again. His nakedness was to further the shame and humiliate him before the multitude. Yet the worst was about to come as his arms were stretched out and long timber spikes would be driven through his hands and deep into the timber. His feet would be crossed together and a timber spike driven through both feet. Imagine the pain. Imagine the, the lightning bolts that would run through your nervous system as you endure being nailed to the cross like that. A whole new symphony of pain and now he's falling into a much deeper state of shock. During the first three hours, Jesus makes three statements, beginning at about 9 a.m. And then at 12 noon, darkness is going to envelop the entire land. It's going to just get very dark. And then Jesus will utter his final four comments during that time until his death. We come to the first word here, recorded by Luke in chapter 23. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. I mean, here the Lord is being nailed to the cross and he offers this amazing prayer to God. He doesn't pray for himself. He doesn't pray, Lord, strike them down. Just just take them out right now. Deliver me from this. He doesn't pray for his relatives. He doesn't pray for those that he loves. He prays for his enemies. For the very ones that are killing him and nailing him, he is sitting there offering them forgiveness. Everybody within earshot hears it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What a telling statement. What an indictment upon those who thought they were doing the right thing. And yet, the indictment is you don't know what you're doing. 
You know, as I was preparing this message and thinking about this, how many times has the Lord looked upon me? Jeff, <laughs> you just don't know what you're doing right now. Oh, man. How many of us really, really know what we're doing? Putin thinks he knows what he's doing. So many men and women today think they know what they're doing. You know who really knows what we're doing? It's him. The Lord knows for sure what we, whether what we're doing is something that is right or wrong. I mean, think about this. Man has really committed some doozies in his life. I mean, you have, you know, spiritual suicide in the garden with Adam and Eve. You have fratricide with their kids as, you know, Cain kills Abel. And now you have this deicide here as man is killing the Son of God. They know not what they're doing. My friend, all of this, these words are for you and for me this morning. For those who know not what they're doing, the gospel is for sinners, and it's only for sinners. It's not for the righteous. It's for those of us who need a Savior. It's for those of us who, who need forgiveness in our lives. And we have to be willing to embrace our need first before we can enjoy the benefit of knowing him and loving him and walking with him and enjoying that peace which passes all understanding. And as Jesus said in John 15, that your joy may be full, there has to be an emptying of myself. There has to be an emptying of my own thinking and agree with God that I don't know what I'm doing. And so Jesus is offering a prayer of forgiveness for the people. And then in this first three hours, we come to the second word in Luke 23, and we see an exchange taking place between Jesus and the other two that are hanging on crosses next to him. And Jesus said to the malefactor, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first word was a prayer to God. And the second word is an answer to that prayer. When the thief on the cross says, Lord, will you remember me in your kingdom? No, I, you have to be baptized first. Sorry, you can't, uh, can't do that. Oh, I'm sorry, you have to do this or you have to do that. No, the Lord offered him complete restoration in the moment. Complete pardon. Complete welcoming by the Lord. How did this guy change his tune? How is he first taunting the Lord with the other guy and now he changes his tune and now he believes that Jesus is sufficient for his sin? Well, first of all, he had nothing to live for and now he has nothing to lose. I mean, it's a natural thing. It's your last chance. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus is in the middle of the two. They both could read the sign on his cross. This is the king of the Jews. No doubt Jesus' calm demeanor. And, and maybe this guy saw him heal the blind. Maybe he saw him ride in on that donkey into Jerusalem. Maybe he witnessed something very different about the Lord. But nonetheless, Jesus was his last hope in all of eternity. Isaiah the prophet had a similar experience when in his vision of the Lord, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and yet he declared, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
We're all men and women of unclean lips. You know what? Being in the presence of God will reduce you to that place. And so being in the backdrop of Jesus' presence, this man knew who he really was. I mean, if I compare myself to some of you, and you compare yourself to me, we look pretty good. But that's not the issue. The issue is, how do we look when we compare ourselves to Christ? That's the issue for us. <laughs> you know, people say that you should pray for you know, others first. It's selfish. No, you can't pray for others unless you've learned to pray this one prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the prayer that God will always, always answer every single time. Lord, save me. Lord, have mercy on me. And so Jesus gave the thief assurance, this day you'll be with me in paradise. The assurance of the salvation, the restoration of fellowship, a home you're going to receive. You know, Jesus was comforting his disciples in that upper room and he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. That in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And the way I go, I, the way I go, you know, and, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. But he was reassuring to them. No stopovers, no purgatory, no temporary sleep. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We now come to the third word in John 19, and we see now the Lord speaking from the cross, and now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, which is John who's writing this, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus' attention is now upon that human instrument that carried him for nine months in the womb, Mary, the one who was chosen by God to bring forth the Savior of the world, the one who would bring salvation to all of mankind. And here Jesus is doing the duty of the one closest to him. He's speaking to two of the most beloved people in his very life. Even in the act of redeeming the world, he's not sidetracked from taking care of his own mother. Jesus knew that Mary would have a sympathetic home with John and she would be well taken care of in her time of grieving and loss. Jesus entrusted Mary to John because sadly, all the other disciples had left. It's interesting to me that when you're in the zone of danger, and John certainly was being surrounded by centurions and revilers, he himself could have been taken away. It's there that he's used the greatest. The Lord puts him in charge of his own mother. I find that to be fascinating to me. The zone of usefulness. We come to the fourth word, and now this word is, oh, this is incredible because it's the center of seven. You have three in the front from nine until noon, and then from noon until three, you'll have three. But right here in the middle are these words right here recorded for us in Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What impression do these words make upon you and I? I mean, the jeers have been ringing in Jesus' mind for the last several hours. He saved others, but he himself, he can't save. Why didn't he respond to his mockers? General William Booth of the Salvation Army, he wrote, it's precisely because he would not come down off that cross is why I choose to believe in him. There's a change in the atmosphere now. Darkness is now covering the land. This is the halfway point of his crucifixion. And now the scene changes from grace. Jesus has prayed for his enemies. He's restored a malefactor. He's prayed for his mother. And now the, 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 the atmosphere goes from grace to judgment. It's interesting to me, too, that darkness covered the land of Egypt during that Passover for three whole hours as well. And the darkness also during the day was a miracle because this is the time of the full moon. This is when Passover was always celebrated. It's as if all of nature is grieving with the Lord in his death. And I ask myself, and I think we need to ask ourselves, why did he utter this cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he felt forsaken. It's hitting him. It's hitting him in the most incredible dark ways. I mean, he was, he was first, you know, rejected by the religious leaders. He was forsaken by them. And then by his own family. You know, he had brothers. I mean, could you imagine being a brother of Jesus growing up? Getting in a fight with your brother? Oh, what do you think, you are God or something? And Jesus goes, well, as a matter of fact, now that you ask, <laughs> live with a perfect brother. <laughs> you know, his brothers didn't believe until after his resurrection. They went on to be leaders in the church. He was forsaken by his own disciples in the garden. He was forsaken many ways at many times. And so this moment right here, as, he, as the father is turning his face away from the son, it's like Jesus is now experiencing a crucifixion within a crucifixion in his soul, in his mind. His body is going through all of this trauma, but yet his mind as well, his heart. He said to his disciples in that upper room, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, all of you, and you will leave me alone. He saw it coming, and here it is. Our Lord was treated as if he had committed every sin in history. When he died upon the cross, he endured your death and my death. He took upon himself the iniquity of us all. He took upon everything upon his physical body. In the book of Leviticus, in 1711, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so at that time, you would take your oxen, your sheep, your dove, and you would take it to the high priest, and the priest would lay his hand on that animal, and you would, or excuse me, you would lay your hand on that animal, and, he, and the priest would slit its throat, and there was a transference of your sin upon that animal, and that animal would pay the price of your sin. That was called atonement, which is a 
temporary looking past. It was kind of an allowance until this moment came. This is what John calls propitiation, the final payment of man's sin, past, present, and future. All of those sins that were committed in the past and were atoned for are now paid for in full. That was like a layaway plan in a sense. And now the Lord is paying for the world's sin. And this is the first time in the history of the triunity that Jesus was separated from his father. How we need to think and consider the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. The God-man took on human skin and flesh and became one of us for the very purpose of using that flesh to purchase our sins, to buy our sins, to suffer physically, and to give himself for us. So he felt every whip. He felt every timber spike. He felt every jeer. He felt every punch. He felt all of it. And that can have the worst effect even on the strongest. I mean, it says in 1 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin, he became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God through Christ. And so here the Lord was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And what does he do? Praise. In the form of a question, nonetheless, but he prays, my God, my God, as long as you and I can claim God is with us, you'll never be alone. My friend, one of the tactics of the enemy is to drive a sheep right off the course, out of the herd, right out there, and get you discouraged. You might be a husband, a father, a mother, and you are deeply discouraged. I know there are some in this room this morning who are despairing even of life, that are even to the point of where maybe it hurts so much I don't want to live anymore. The Lord is with you. He cares about you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He knows what it's like. And he will hold you and he will restore you and he'll put you on your feet again. Just trust him, amen? So as long as you and I can claim God as our very own, we'll never be totally desolate. The fifth word in John 19.28 says, After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. So now the most important work has been done. He denied the gall at the beginning, the medicated wine that would put him out of his senses. He wanted to be in his right mind, so he denied it. And now his tongue is just cleaving to his mouth. All of his body fluids are just exhausted. His heart is just racing right now. And, and you know, most of us wouldn't ask for a drink of water or something from our executioners, you know. But he does. He humbles himself to do that. And so he continues on in his crucifixion. The end is very near for him. Crucifixion is not dying of pain. It's not dying from a loss of blood. Crucifixion is about dying of slow suffocation. It's hanging. It's, it's, 
It's the weight of your body crushing your lungs to where you can't breathe anymore. And and most times it takes days to die that way. But the Lord, you have to remember, has been whipped 39 times. And he's been brutally violated. And he's already at the end pretty much. But it's about... It's about hanging there and about pushing up to get a breath and then hanging back down to rest and then having to breathe again. It's suffocation. That's what it is. And the body now is saying stop. Many on the cross will, you know, hang there for for days, but Jesus will only hang there for six hours. And now the sixth word in John 19. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. The greatest sermon that has ever been preached. The greatest sermon. It is finished. What does the word finished mean? It means the following. To make an end of. Means it is paid. It is performed. It is accomplished. Well, what was made an end of? Our sins. And all the guilt and shame that accompanies those sins, that was what was made an end of. He put an end. He put a stop to all of that, my friends. The Father says that I've taken your sin and I've cast your sin out into the deepest parts of the ocean. And they can never be retrieved again. That's what he's done with your sin. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so he has, what, removed our sins or cast our sins from us. My friends, I know where the North Pole is. It's that way. And I know where the South Pole is. It's that way. But have you ever been to the East Pole or the West Pole? Infinite. He has cast our sins infinitely away from us forever. And the Bible declares that he has no remembrance of those sins anymore. Lord, I can't get over this. Do you remember? Nope. But Lord, what about that time in my marriage? Nope. Don't go there, Jeff. But do you remember? No. I don't remember. I freed you from that. I made an end of those things. When you and I can't forgive ourselves of our sins, what happens? We put a libel on his character. What he did was sufficient for us. What he did, he made an end of. It's gone. There was a woman who wanted to partake of communion in front of Charles Spurgeon. She refused, and he came up to her and he said, Why won't you partake? And she said, Because I'm so sinful. He goes, Woman, it's for sinners. Eat it. It's for you. And so he paid the debt of my wrong actions and the guilt. And he forgave me so I might forgive myself. What was paid? Well, the price of redemption. What was performed? The righteous requirements of the law. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What was accomplished? All that the Father had given him to do. 
Jesus said, the works which your father has given me to finish, the same works I do. I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I finished what you gave me to do. While Jesus was upon the cross, we learn a very important truth here, that no one took his life. He gave his life and his spirit to the Father. Hebrews 9 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, and with a more and greater and perfect tabernacle, not weighed with hands, that is, not of this creation, but and not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of us who transgress under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Therefore, Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That day when Jesus died, he made intercession for me. He interceded. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it's there where he lives to make intercession for you, each of you. For you, and for you, my brother, and for you, my sister, and for you, each of us individually. He intercedes and he he prays to the Father on our behalf. And he's always there. That's what his, his goal, his purpose, his end game, that's what he lives to do because that's what he's all about. Why? Because he he loves us. May the Spirit of God touch your heart that you'd receive this and know this, that God is for you and not against you. He has an eternal heartache for you. So we have to personally settle the issue. He came to seek and save save that which was lost. He also said, I've come to give life and that more abundantly. The crucifixion is all about the heart of God towards us. The seventh word in Luke chapter 23 says, And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Here the Lord is quoting from Psalm 31. The very first verse. You know something? Everything that Jesus did was from the scriptures. The surrounding Jews and soldiers now sought Pilate that they would be able to break the legs of the prisoners that were on the cross because they had to hasten their deaths because Passover was coming. Their bodies had to be taken down. They had to be dead. They had to be buried by 6 p.m. So time was running out. And so they took what was like a big giant maul or an iron pipe and they would go up to the individual cross and literally splinter the legs of the men hanging there because now it's just dead weight. You can't lift to get a breath and you would die a lot sooner. When they came to Christ, he was already expired. Again, a fulfillment of prophecy all the way, almost a thousand years before in the book of Psalm chapter 34, a bone of his shall not be broken. In Leviticus, way back when, in the Old Testament, in the time of Moses, you shall not offer the Lord that which is bruised or crushed or broken or cut, neither shall you make any offering in your land. 
Any offering you would make physically had to be perfect. And that's why Jesus Christ died for us. His blood was sinless. He didn't have an earthly father to taint his blood. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was perfect in every way. He was the only one mathematically who could pay for your sins and my sins. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced the side of Jesus and forthwith came out blood and water. It was to guarantee his death, but with it came water and blood, which means that he died of a ruptured heart, a broken heart. And so the blood of Jesus poured out for us. Another fulfillment of scripture in Zechariah that says, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. I'd like Greg to come up at this time, and he's going to lead us in a time of worship. And we're going to partake of communion, and we're going to do it a little differently. I'm not going to ask you to stand right now. You can be seated, but you husbands, stand for your wife and come and take the elements back and serve your wife this morning and pray with your wife at your seat. We're not going to take of the elements together. I'd like you just to take the, the next song or two and partake of communion at your own pace before the Lord. Maybe you're a single person here and you have a friend in the room. Seek out that friend and pray together and just thank the Lord together for what he's done. Because 2,000 years ago, these events happened. The Lord shed his blood. And when he shed his blood, he had you in mind, he had me in mind. And it was like no other day in history. It was a day when the veil was torn from top to bottom. It was a day when... The the tombs of the saints were opened and they roamed the streets of Jerusalem. And it was an also day when when the Roman centurion was there at at the death of Jesus and he said these words, truly this was the Son of God. So let's thank him. Amen. So go ahead and partake together and just rest in his work and just... Commit yourself to him even right now as we just wait upon the Lord. Enjoy the music, listen to the words, and let's thank the Lord together.